All right, we're going to be in Psalm 4 this morning. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 4. And we're going to deal with something this morning that this psalm deals with and that everyone deals with. And that is how to deal with anxiousness. Have you ever had a restless night? As I was getting ready this week, uh, the Lord gave me a few of those, and it was a, not a funny joke. Uh, we deal with the, the weight of the anxieties and the pressures and the distresses of life, and we all, we all know this. You've all had those times where you're carrying around something where whatever it is you're doing, whatever else is going on, your mind and your heart are just always going back to this thing, and it's eating you up, and you're, you're anxious inside. And we all deal with that every day, really. And, but we know if, if we've trusted in Christ and we're Christians, we know that God desires that we would have peace, that we would have contentment and joy. And oftentimes we are like a, like a child. If you can imagine, you know, let's say that you, you give an inheritance to your child of you know, millions and millions of dollars more than they could ever use. They grow up, they come into their inheritance, and you see them just just worried about every little thing and how am I going to make ends meet and I'm just not sure what to do about this or that and, and, and you're sitting there going, I've, I've, given you, I've given you more than you could ever spend. And often, our Heavenly Father looks at us, I, I've given you every spiritual blessing. I, I desire peace and joy and contentment for you and we sit wringing our hands. And yet this psalm helps us. It helps and, and, and anxiety is one of these things where particularly, it's particularly hard to go from over here what we know, and we, we agree that yes, we, we, we agree with certain theological truths, and we, we've read the scripture, we know that God wants us to have peace, but man, is it hard to turn off your heart and mind when you put your head on the pillow at night. And connecting those two is really difficult sometimes. And God has given us a blessing in this psalm because it gives us, it shows us how David does that. It shows us how David moves from from being in distress and anxious all the way through in verse 7 and 8 to joy and peace. And so we, we realize that the Lord wants his people who trust in him to have peace. And so that is what we are going to be looking at today and letting this psalm help us connect what we know in our head with the actual kind of real life that we live. And so as we start this psalm, we, we want to kind of set some context, and we see at the top here that it's to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And this is written by David. It's, it's, it seems simple when you just read through it. And then the more you dig and the more you scratch, the more you realize how beautifully arranged it is, poetically beautiful, beautiful in the movement from verse 1 to 8, beautiful in the truths that it talks about. And, and David is, is in turmoil and, and bothered, and we'll see this, but about people who are not trusting in Yahweh. They're not trusting in Yahweh, and he's bothered by this. And so this psalm actually came to be used, Psalm 3 and 4 are, are kept together, and they're considered a morning and an evening psalm. And these were sung, it's God's inspired hymn book for his people, and and these were sung in the morning and in the evening. And and you can see in verse 8 why. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. It's like a a Hebrew lullaby, basically. And so this psalm has become inspired worship for us. And it's amazing because God chooses to leave the situation a little bit vague. 
We don't know every detail of what was going on with David here, and he leaves it a little bit vague so that each believer can sing this psalm, and, and, and it applies to us. It teaches us how to think and how to walk through times of distress and difficulty in our life. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the psalm in three parts. Part one is in verse one. David talks to God. Part two is verses two, three, four, and five. That's when he's still praying, but he talks to these men. And then verses six, seven, and eight, he turns and talks back to to God again. So we have three parts, and, and we'll just kind of walk through it that way. And we will go ahead and jump in here in verse one. This is kind of the scene one here, part one, where David is talking to God. And the psalm starts, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David's immediate thing, the first thing on his mind is, God, act. God, do something. God, please answer me. Give give me a response when I call to you, when I pray. And and we want to note this. We'll come back to it at the end, but just, just keep it in mind here. The first thing you notice, if you pay attention to this first word, this is a this is a prayer. And this is because it's a psalm and because it's with stringed instruments, it is a song. It's a prayer and a song. And this is David's plea to God. Answer me. Do something, Lord. O God of my righteousness. O God who makes me right, who gives me all of the the righteousness that I have. And really what he's getting at is that, God, you are the righteous one. You're not crooked. You're not unjust. You're always fair, and it makes sense to appeal to this, right? God, answer me. Give me justice, because you're just. You're righteous. You you are not crooked at all. You always do the right thing. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You are upright. You never do the wrong thing, so answer me, Lord. And then he looks backwards. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Lord, I I was in a tight spot. That's what the, the, the verbs literally mean. You've given me a wide space when I was in a tight spot. I was in dire straits, and you've relieved me. You've, you've helped me in the past, and the implication is, so help me again. So help me again, Lord. I, I need your help. You've given me relief. Do it again, Lord. And I love the way that he reasons with God. Before we look at this, this last line, think about your prayer life. There are numerous examples in the Bible of of godly people who they reason with God in prayer. God, you're not going to bring us out into the wilderness just to kill all of them because then the Egyptians, they'll think that that you're not a kind and a loving and a gracious God. You would never do that, Lord. That's how Moses speaks. Abraham talks about, "You're, you're a just God. You wouldn't destroy the city on account of one righteous person, would you? Do you reason with God like this in prayer? Lord, Lord, come through for me because you're good and you're faithful and I, I want the world to see that you're faithful. So please help me in this situation. The Bible teaches us to reason with God using his own character. Think about your children if they came to you and said, Dad, I know that you are the most kind and gracious father. I mean, you're already, what do you want? Just tell me. <laughs> but the Lord wants to bless his children. So David says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. And now, this is, this is really beautiful poetically what he does here. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This is mirroring the first phrase. So I want you to hear the, the subtle shift. Verse 1, answer me. 
verse, the end of verse 1, hear, be gracious. You see, even the, the nouns are different. The God of my righteousness, justice, uprightness. But then, then at the end, be, be gracious. It's almost like he steps back a little bit and realizes, oh wait, if, if, if we're talking full righteousness, I, I, deserve, I deserve the wrath to fall on me. No, Lord, just be gracious to me. And, and not, he moves from answer me to God, just hear me. You, you've been there, haven't you? I just, Lord, I just want to know that you hear. I just want to know that you're listening. Hear me. And it makes sense that he appeals to righteousness, but it's interesting in, in this next line when he says, be gracious to me. I want to think for a moment here about graciousness. About graciousness. And when we talk about grace, let's go back to Exodus 34. This is sort of where God starts to really reveal this idea of grace and graciousness. What is David getting at when he says, be gracious to me? If you go back to Exodus 34, what's going on there is that Moses has requested, God, I want to see you. I want to see you. And God says, no, you can't. You can't see me and live. But I'll let you see essentially the, the back of me. And I'll, I'll proclaim my name before you. And this is going to be the pivotal revelation of God up to this point in the Bible. It's the most quoted passage throughout the rest of the Bible. Is this passage that we're about to read. God is going to reveal himself in more clarity than he has all up to this point in Scripture in what he says to Moses. And the one last thing before we read it to remember is just before this was the whole golden calf incident. Just before this, God's people had been led out of Egypt. He had brought all the plagues on Egypt, and then they immediately turn and start worshiping a, a golden calf. So Moses says, I want to see you. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God. And how do you complete that sentence? Righteous and majestic, that's true. A God high and lifted up, that's true. A God of power and might, that's true too. But what God says is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, he does go on to talk about how, how he is righteous and his wrath goes out against sin. Absolutely true. But the first thing he says, the first thing out of his mouth when he reveals himself, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It takes a long time to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The idea of abounding is overflowing. When the uh, kids left this morning, to go up to, to camp at Hume Lake, if you could see the luggage compartments, you would understand abounding. It's like, you know, it's shoved in there, and the minute you open it, it all falls out. That's the idea. The minute you open up the hood on who God is, what tumbles out? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. The way the New Testament says this, we're going to go to one more place, actually. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, and I'll give you a second to get there. Um, all the way in the New Testament, we see the idea of graciousness revealed most clearly in Jesus. 
in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is the key verse. So that, the reason for all of the salvation in Christ that he's given us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's plan for you, if you trust him, his plan for you is decade after decade, century after century, to show more and more of his grace spilling over and kindness to you if you're in Christ Jesus. That is God's eternal plan for you. To pour out, how is God glorified forever and ever? The way that he shows that glory is by pouring out mercy and grace and kindness on us over and over and over and over again forever. That is the God and that is the grace that David asked for in this psalm. Let's go back there to Psalm 4. He's saying, be gracious to me, because he knows this is the God who, who overflows in gracious kindness and love and mercy. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He sees, he hears, he understands. Sometimes the Lord leads us through dark valleys. Sometimes there, there are things in life where you feel like no one else will get this. No one else sees the depth of this loneliness. No one else can walk to this place that I've been. And I guarantee you, you've been to places of darkness that I, I, I don't know, I don't understand, I haven't been there. But he knows and he sees. You remember that great passage at the end of Exodus 2. The people cry out to God in their, in their slavery and it says he, heard, he saw their groaning, he remembered his promises, and then it says... And God saw and God knew. He knows every dark corner, every difficulty, every pain, every loneliness. He knows. And he knows not in a distant, cold, measuring way. He knows with the tenderness of a father that overflows in love and mercy and grace. And so we pray to him, knowing that he's that kind of God. He is more excited to give the blessing to us that we really need than we are. Lord, I want this, I need this. And he says, I, I've got something even better for you. And I'm not, I, I will move heaven and earth to give you the best thing for your eternal good. That's how you should think about your circumstances. Your spouse, your life situation, your whatever you are in, purposefully, intentionally, in every detail, God made it that way because it would be the best thing for your eternal good. And sometimes we just have to say, I trust you. I don't get it, but I trust you. And so the Lord is gracious, and David says, hear my prayer. And now we move to, to part two, in verse two. He, he turns now to these men. He's still praying, but he turns to these men, and he starts speaking to them. And he says, O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And as I mentioned, it's, it's slightly vague what's going on here, but if we pay attention to some of the details, we can flesh out the picture a little bit of, of what is going on. So the first thing to notice, you see how he says, my honor, my honor? This is the, the exact same word uh, that he uses one page before in your Bible in 
Psalm 3, verse 3. In Psalm 3, verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory and my honor, those are the same, uh, that's actually the same word, just translated different into English. And, and it seems like here this would, this would hold true as well. How long shall my honor or my glory be turned into shame? The idea is not so much that David's worried about himself. The idea is that, that David's God is being dishonored. How long shall my honor be turned into shame or into an insult? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So this second phrase in verse 2 is one of those times where uh, the ESV adds a bit to help, and I think the, uh, the NASB is actually helpful. It says, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? The idea is you love things that are empty and, and they have no value. You love worthless things and, and you aim or you seek after false things. What is false? That's idol language. That's how the Old Testament talks often about idol worship, that they're seeking after a falsehood. Or, and so what seems to be going on, and we'll point out a few other things, but what seems to be going on is that David is looking at these men and saying they're turning away from Yahweh. They're going after other gods for some reason, and he's in angst over this. He's in turmoil over this. And we can see a little more of what is, what is happening here if we look further. So, verse 3, uh, it says that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The idea of the word godly there is the devoted one, the one that's loyal to Yahweh alone. The, the, uh, then in verse 5, he tells them, put your trust in the Lord, put your trust in Yahweh. The implication being they're, they're not doing that. They're trusting something else. And then in verse 7, we, we kind of see what's driving this whole thing. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Okay, grain and wine abounding is the end of the harvest when you have a big party to celebrate the good harvest. Now, you don't have a good harvest unless you have rain. And in that culture, you don't have rain unless you give the right sacrifices to the right gods and then they give you rain. And what seems to be going on here is that these men, in verse 2, are going after other gods to get the stuff that they want in life. To get the rain, to get the good crops, to have money, to provide for their families. And David is in turmoil over this. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Verse 3, he's still still talking to them, and we really get to the meat of what's going on here. This is kind of gives us the core distinction between these men and David. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He has set apart the godly for himself. I mentioned that this word has to do with uh, devotion. We, we get the word, um, if, if you think Hasidic Jews, super devoted, super uh, careful in, in their observations. That Hasidic word is, is, comes from the word used here. The idea is devoted, loyal. The, the faithful covenant love that God shows, showed in a, a person back to God. And so David, David is saying, and, and this is where kind of the, the key is, David comforts himself not by saying, God will answer my prayer and he'll, he'll, he'll get, give me what I want. That's not his comfort. His comfort in verse 3 is, I have God and God has me. It's relationship. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So you, you want your, your rain so your grain and your wine can abound. I, I, don't, I don't care whether I get that or not. I have the Lord. 
and that's enough. And that's, that's what he's saying. I, I know, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He is comforted, not by circumstance changing, but he's comforted at the core. What he really wants at the core is God himself. And this is a good spot to, to step aside and talk a little bit about the gospel and about how we talk and think about the gospel. Because ultimately, the gospel, the offer of the gospel is not ultimately heaven. The offer of the gospel is God. When we preach the gospel, what we're saying is, here is God revealed in Jesus Christ. Do you want him? And what a Christian response is, is they go to the Gospels and they see Jesus and they see who he is and they say, I'm following him. God changes your heart so you say, I'm following him. Wherever he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And what we can sometimes do that's dangerous is separate Jesus from, from the benefits that come with him. As though Jesus were this funnel to get to peace and joy and eternal life. Not that those things are bad, but they always go with Christ. And the offer of the gospel, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, the offer of the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, that's who we offer you. Not a formula, not a special prayer to pray to get into God's kingdom. It doesn't work like that. We offer you a person. And if you would bow your knee to him and trust in him, you will be saved and rescued and have peace and joy and eternal life and all these things. Separate them and you have nothing. Keep Christ and the benefits together and with Christ you get everything. And I think practically this plays out. I've heard people say before, you know, that theology stuff, that's great, but you know what? I trust Jesus, so I'm going to heaven, so it doesn't really matter. I just, I just trust Jesus, so I'm going to heaven. That's good, right? And I want to ask, would you trust him if you weren't going to heaven? Would you trust him anyways? Would you trust him not for the gifts he gives, but just for himself? And, and I think it's fine. The Bible many times uses the benefits to draw people towards Christ. To say, there's eternal life in him, Come. But ultimately, what you're getting is him. And the question is, is he enough? Have you seen him in his word and said, yeah, he's enough? Have you seen him in the way that his people love one another? And said, yeah, whoever they're following, I want to follow him. So David is saying, "The the Lord is enough. He has set apart the godly for himself. I have him and he has me, and that is what I need. And that leads to the conclusion of verse 3, and the Lord hears when I call to him. That's the conviction. I don't, I don't need circumstances to change to know that. I know the Lord is gracious, and I know he listens, and I know he hears me. When I pray, he hears. He hears when I call. So he continues speaking to these men now in verse 4. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. There's another kind of beautiful poetic thing going on here. The, the verb they translated be angry is just shake. Could be fear, could be anger. It's different in different places. And then the word be silent is still. So you have shaking and then still at the end. It's kind of the, the counterpoints of each other. And the idea is, is be agitated is kind of the footnote that ESV has. Be agitated, but don't sin. Instead, meditate, ponder, think 
in your own hearts and on your beds, this is when, when no one else is around, when no one else is looking in the deepest parts of who you are, think and meditate. He's counseling these people who are turning away from the Lord. Meditate on your beds and be silent before the Lord. The idea is think about what you're doing and turn away from sin. Selah. This word selah came up earlier. I forgot to mention it. It probably means, um, we're not sure exactly what it means, but it probably means pause and have like a musical interlude. It might mean raise the, the like crescendo in the music. Um, so these are pauses here that, that he mentions. Ponder on your beds, in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent. Selah. And then the the kind of obvious next conclusion he draws, verse 5, offer right sacrifices. Now, this is not so much saying offer right sacrifices as in make sure you do all the right ceremonial things. The idea is offer a devoted heart to the Lord. The, the devotion of the heart is what matters and what he cares about. And he's saying, he's saying stop turning to idols to get what you want and give all of your devotion in your heart to the Lord. Offer right sacrifices at the heart level. Maybe a, a way to think of it today would be it, we think about um, when we read our Bible and when we pray or have a devotional time, he's saying, do that with your whole heart. Don't do that half-heartedly. Give, give the Lord your full devotion. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is what David ultimately wants for those who are opposing the Lord. Put your trust in him, bow before him, and worship him. You can't serve two masters. And so, Part one, he, he asked the Lord, answer, hear me, be gracious to me. I, I'm once again in a, in a tight situation, and I need you to give me a way out. And then he turns to the men in verse two and essentially says, stop following after worthless lies. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. And now we come to this, this third part, this third kind of scene here, where David turns back to the Lord. He turns back to the Lord and speaks directly to him. And he says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The emphasis in that first phrase is the who. Who? Which one? Who's going to show us something good? Who's going to give us what we want? And then what it seems like they're doing, this next part of the quote is taken from something called the priestly or the ironic blessing. You've probably heard this, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Seems like what they're doing is turning that into almost like a, like a magic statement. Like, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Who's gonna, maybe Yahweh will show us some good. Maybe Baal or another God will show us some good. Who's, who's going to give us what we're looking for? I think about there's a scene uh, in a movie where this kind of slimy guy is, is basically right about to die. And he has all these uh, necklaces on of different like religious symbols, and he just pulls one up and uh, uh, prays to Allah, and then he prays to Buddha, and then he prays, and he's like going through all of them and just trying to get like who's going to help me. And this is what these men seem to be doing here in verse six. And David is putting this to the Lord. Basically, they, they don't they don't care about you. They don't love you, Lord. Answer me. And now verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. This is maybe the core statement of the whole, whole thing. We touched on this, but 
the grain and wine idea is that you have harvest throughout the, the summer months, and you're bringing in your grain, you're also bringing in and harvesting grapes, and so you would turn those into wine by, by um, pressing them out, and you get first its juice, and then it ferments, and it becomes wine. The word used here is specifically about new wine. So the idea is the harvest has just happened, the, the grapes have just been pressed out, it's essentially grape juice at this point, and it's time to party. Because when, when you have an overflowing amount of, of grain and wine, that means things are good. We're going we're gonna to eat for another year. We're going to be able to sell it and make money. This is the equivalent of, you know, uh, dad got a raise and a huge signing bonus, and we're going out to dinner, and you order whatever you want. This is, this is party time. This is, and, and this is the unbeliever's mentality of work hard, play hard. Uh, we, we, we live for the weekend, we live for the vacation, now's the time to take all the stuff, which is what we really care about, and enjoy it. And what David says is, when they're all partying, even if you don't give me the rain that brings the grain and the wine, you put more joy in my heart than that. Deeper joy, more lasting joy. Some of you, some of you know this. We've all seen it if you've lived long enough that those who pursue the stuff that the world offers, it ends up bitter and empty and, and sharp as a sword in the end that, that cuts ourselves. It, it, there's only pain at the end of that road. And, and David is saying there's joy, real joy, uh, untainted joy, lasting joy that the Lord gives. And, and, and not just better joy, but more. More joy than they have when, you know, all the money and all the power and all the wealth, and you, they've got it all. doesn't matter. Because, David says, remember earlier, you've set apart the godly for yourself. I have you, Lord. If I have you, I have everything. And before we move on, let's talk for a moment here about uh, joy in the Lord. So this is another one of those things where it's easy to talk about, but kind of hard to connect to experience. How, how do I connect and really have joy in the Lord when I wake up grumpy on Tuesday? That's, that's hard. That is difficult. And just a few sort of notes on this uh, that have been helpful to me. The first thing is sometimes we start to think that like there's this other category of Christians who just don't deal with those things. Like, you, you cross this threshold, and, um, you know, maybe you look at Mark Holbrook, who did the host notes. Like, when you've walked with the Lord for that long, it, it's just not a struggle anymore, right? Or you hear pastors talking about, find your joy in the Lord, look to Christ. Do I, and and it, it's true, and it's great, and it's wonderful, but, like, what, well, I'm just a normal person. What do I do? And I think it's encouraging to know and to remember it's always a fight for joy for everybody. For, for the oldest believer, to the youngest believer, to the most mature believer, to all over the place, it's always a fight for joy. It's all, we all wake up with the grumpy heart sometimes. We all wake up and, and are short with our spouse or whatever else. We, we all struggle with these things. The second thing that's been helpful to me, we hear sometimes things like verse 7, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And we think that it's opposites. Like, there's, there's the stuff in the world, and I shouldn't get any joy from that. And then there's, like, this wispy kind of joy in the Lord that I don't really know how to define, but, like, that's what I should really want. And, and the way the Bible describes it throughout the whole of Scripture is that, that really those, those are united. They're not opposite. They're united. 
When we really want the Lord most of all, the whole world becomes a theater for enjoying him. Everything in creation is a way to enjoy. Paul says that everything is to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving, and that with the word and God and prayer, we're able to think rightly about these things and not love the stuff, but love the Lord through the stuff. So we don't reject creation and the good things about it. He thought of all of it and all of the good in it. It's meant to be enjoyed, but he's meant to be enjoyed in it and most. And so that question just becomes, what do I want most? Do I really want the stuff most or do I really want him most? And then the third thing that, that is helpful, I think, is just as we think about, okay, so how do I actually get to where I can say with David, uh, you put more joy in my heart. And I, I, this isn't new, but I would describe it as, as dependently growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Not just mentally, but, but we start with dependence because we know we can't force spiritual growth. God has to give it. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. And, and the psalmist prays, open my eyes so I can see wonderful things in your word. You have to start with dependence. Lord, please help me to see how, how beautiful you are. Please give me joy. Please, we depend, but then we grow in our knowledge. As a pastor, I hear people come and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't feel like I have a close relationship with the Lord. I don't feel like I have joy. And not always, but sometimes you want to ask, do you understand even God's kind of basic plan for the world? Do you understand what God says about you and your role and your purpose? Do you understand who Christ is? I mean, I, I would dare any of us to say, I don't feel close to the Lord, to spend a month studying who Christ is as, as much as we possibly can, and then come back and, and, and tell me my joy didn't change at all. It just won't happen if you're a believer. The deeper we go, the more things we can look at in the world, every, everything about the world becomes a pointer back to him. Every speck of dust, every blade of grass is meant to point us back to him to see his goodness and his care and the way he takes care of, of the world, the way he takes care of us, what he thinks of us, how he has purchased us with his blood, how Jesus, we, we look at Christ and we see there's no one like this man. There's no one who has this level of courage and patience and, and, and peace and the ability to heal and the ability to tell, tell the ocean, be still and it listens. I mean, the more you see of him, and, and this joy just starts to build. And so to get to where David is, to say you put more joy in my heart, we dependently pursue relationship with the Lord. I'm not talking about just some like mental knowledge, but, but you go and you see him in the word, and you say, I want to know you more. I want to know you more deeply, and he promises that he'll reveal himself to us when we do that. And so David here says, yeah, even if I don't get the stuff, even when the grain and the new wine don't abound, you are enough. You have put more joy in my heart because, and by the way, uh, it's interesting just to note, their grain and wine abound, and David prays to the God who abounds in steadfast love. And so he does not have to have the stuff because he has the Lord. Verse 8 Verse 8, this is sort of the, the really beautiful close to this psalm. We've gone from almost, almost David's anxiousness in, answer me, in verse 1. And now we, we come all the way down to verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. No change to his circumstances. Zero indication that, that 
God has changed his circumstances at all. And yet, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. There's something neat, too, here. Um, You see how it's a little bit redundant. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. You could say, I will lie down and sleep. But the reason that the translators kept the both in there is because it's specifically bringing these two ideas together almost like simultaneously. The idea is, I will put my head on the pillow and go to sleep. Not toss and turn and and think anxiously about everything going on. I'll put my head down and I will go to sleep. And what I love about Scripture and what I love about the Lord is that it says this here, and it's true, obviously, but there's other instances where David does toss and turn. And uh, you could go to Psalm 56 with me for a moment. Psalm 56, in verse 8, this is also a psalm of David, and he says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The idea here is that he's tossing and turning on his bed, and I don't know how many times I toss and turn in the night. You probably don't keep count. God does. God knows every time you toss and turn. Whether that's in anxiousness, even when we sin, he still cares, he still loves us, he still keeps track of every detail, he puts my tears in a bottle, or sometimes we're just, we're just awake at night, and it's not a sin issue, it's just, we're just awake, sometimes sleep just doesn't come, and even then, you've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? And the implication is not, yeah, you keep count and you don't care, no, you keep count because you care about every detail, and you see into the deepest places of my life, and yet you still gave your son while I was a sinner. In peace, back to Psalm 4, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote where he says, the person who has the wings of Yahweh over them does not need to fear about any other forms of protection. The man who has Yahweh's wings over him does not need to fear. In peace I will both lie down and sleep because for you alone, you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. This is why he's at peace because Yahweh watches over him and the same God that cared for him cares for us. The promise is not for us you will never have any physical danger. But the promise is I will keep you safe in Christ and pour out my riches and grace on you day by day, year by year, decade by decade from now until eternity. And as we wrap up, I want to draw together some some threads here. So if you are a Christian, if you trust in Christ, how do you get from, from anxious turmoil to the joy and peace? And what we see if we draw the threads together, the, the first thing, comes in verse kind of 2 and 3 in verse 7 as well. A devoted heart. A devoted heart. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly, the devoted, the loyal for himself. And then verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The, the kind of foundational layer of concrete 
on a life that has settled peace and contentment is devotion to the Lord. Lord, I'm wholly yours. I, I, I give all that I am to you, wherever, whenever, whatever you say, I am yours. I'm devoted fully to you. The second thing we see here from David that teaches us is the conviction of the truth. Verse 1, verse 3, and verse 8. In verse 1, you notice how he, he calls on who God is. You're the God of my righteousness. You're the, you're the God who is gracious. You're the God who has, he remembers what he's done in the past. You've rescued me before. And he's convinced of these truths. He's convinced in verse 3, the Lord hears when I call him. He's convinced in verse 8, you are the Lord who makes me dwell in safety. And, and he reminds himself of this. He talks to himself with this. He, he's convinced. It's not just a knowledge, but it's a conviction. Even when I'm not sure, I know the Lord hears. I know the Lord cares. I know the Lord is overflowing in steadfast love. I know these things, and I'm convinced of them. And so he has a devoted heart, a conviction of what is true. And then, the third thing, this comes in verse 1 and 8, a resolve to act. But maybe not act like you're thinking of. A resolve to act. In verse 1, in prayer. Remember we noted that at the beginning? In prayer. And in verse 8, independence. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Without receiving the answer that he wanted, without really knowing whether he has any answer one way or the other, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. The, the, the action that he does is pray and depend on the Lord. How often do we skip that? I need this, I'm anxious about this. Wait, just stop and pray. Ask. You have not because you ask not, James says. Ask for peace. Ask for contentment. Ask for him to answer you. Devoted in heart, convinced of the truth, and then resolved to act in prayer and dependence. Prayer and dependence. And so that's for, for you who are believers. For, for those of you who don't know the Lord, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, the, like I said earlier, the offer of the gospel is God. We are offering God revealed in Jesus to you, and with him, you get this type of peace and cleansing of your sin and righteousness and friendship with God and, and all kinds of eternal blessings. But this type of peace and joy and contentment, you cannot get outside of him. You'll never find it anywhere else, but in Christ you find it, and you finally find rest and peace for your soul. And so this is the offer. The God who is overflowing. You, 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 open, you open the hood on who God is and he overflows with love and joy and graciousness and kindness. That's the Lord that, that is offered to you. And that we would, our whole church family would say, come to him. Bow to him. Why would you not? There, my dad uh, used to say something that I can never get out of my mind. He'd say, imagine a sheet on the ground. Put all of the things that are bothering you on the sheet. Grab all the corners, tie it up, and hand it to the Lord. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's, that's what we can do if we know the Lord. We, we wrap it up, we hand it to him, and we say, Lord, I don't understand, but in peace I will lie down and sleep because you take care of me. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you that you do take care of us. Thank you for causing David to write this psalm. Thank you for preserving it 
for us and giving it to us in a language that we can read and dig into. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us peace and joy and contentment in you. Father, for anyone here who doesn't know you, we ask that they would bow their knee to Christ, that they would see how good, how kind, how glorious you are, and that they would run to him and bow their knee to him. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus.